AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hi, Stan. Heard you had a story about Bitcoin stealing on the Ruby Gem site. Hey, Karen. Yes, uh, actually, this post uh, on ThreatPost uh, pointed me to some great research by the guys at Reversing Labs, um, who did a, a little bit of a study looking at different packages that are contained on the Ruby development site. So um, these are called Ruby gems, and they're used by developers to achieve some sort of like a function. Uh, so, for example, it's basically different libraries. So you don't want you don't have to like rewrite the code yourself. Um, so this is uh, predominant in pretty much every uh, programming language. Uh, but in this case, Reversing Labs was basically looking at um, you know, the Ruby developer libraries. And what they discovered with actually some pretty cool analysis, I, I like the way that they approached um, studying this problem, is that there were some packages that were being distributed that looked similar to other packages that were legitimate packages that you know people put out there or different uh, developers put out there, but they had an extra uh, little attachment uh, inside of them. So they had a little bit of a, a hidden, uh, I guess, uh, backdoor, uh, so to speak. So what was this backdoor? It was actually these files that were labeled as aaa.png, uh, but if you were to open that file, it's actually an exe, and it what it would do this uh, this malware it was actually install itself in the system and then check your clipboard every so often. And if your clipboard has like a Bitcoin address, like let's say you're copying and pasting somebody's uh, Bitcoin wallet address that you want to send them money, it would actually replace that with the adversary's um, Bitcoin a wallet address. Uh, so let's say you were trying to pay somebody in Bitcoin, you were going to do a copy and paste of their address because those addresses are usually very long and are not human readable uh, or pronounceable or anything like that. It's just like this jumble of strings. So probably most people just copy and paste them. But I guess the concept here is when you'd copy it, after you paste it, it would be replaced with the adversary's address. So, and you might not even notice and you'd make a payment with Bitcoin, it would go to the adversary. So the guys at uh, Reversing Labs, they did a little bit of a study of this and they try to figure out like maybe who's behind it and what are some of the ways that these gems, these libraries are, are um, being distributed. What they discovered is uh, this concept of typo squatting, but actually for, uh, for these gem libraries. Um, so here I have like just an example from the article where a legitimate library might be called uh, Atlas underscore client, but an illegitimate library would be Atlas dash client. And you could see how when you're a developer and you want to download the library, you could easily make a mistake between a underscore and a, and a dash. And they even went further and they said, well, we know what the legitimate library is. You could see it's got, you know, six and a half thousand downloads, but you could see the illegitimate library has almost a third as many downloads as well that people have downloaded this package and perhaps, you know, illegitimately put it on their system. Uh, at the same time, uh, you could see they, they try to track down, like, what are the accounts that are uploading these uh, these libraries? Um, and they've tracked it down to two. Uh, one is 
Peter Gibbons and the other uh, Jim Carrey, and they each, you know, had several different libraries that they were doing this with. It seems like uh, maybe um, smaller, less known libraries, maybe not like, uh, you know, big name ones, uh, but it's interesting, you know, the approach the adversaries took. And this is not a novel approach necessarily uh, for adversaries to take. We've definitely seen this with, um, other um, programming languages like Python, you know, um, I think just looking at this, um, the the key concept here, I think for everyone to realize is when you are downloading third-party components or libraries, you do have to be very careful uh, in in terms of what you're downloading because it could have uh, like a hidden gem or a hidden malware or a hidden backdoor associated with it and if you're not reviewing every component um, and you're just kind of downloading them to try different things you might become a victim of something like this now in terms of different things that could happen this is probably like not the worst things in terms of malware you know just uh, the malware was pretty basic pretty simple however it you know there could be much more uh, serious malware uh, that's part of this uh, that could have been distributed uh, and perhaps they're there are examples of that. Well, it must have been fairly serious. People were stealing their Bitcoin. So at least from a uh, financial impact, it had to be significant, yes. maybe not yes. from, <laughs> from uh, enhancing for more cybersecurity concerns, but it was obviously lucrative for the criminals. Uh, definitely. And you could see that there were basically 700 plus different libraries that they put out there, probably to make sure that they get this to as many developers as possible. It'd be interesting to see an analysis of uh, what the wallets were, like if they, how many Bitcoins they were actually able to uh, redirect to the wallets as a result of the typo squatting that they did. Yes. And I would encourage everyone to read the original write-up from Reversing Labs because they have the wallet and uh, you can even do that analysis yourself if you're feeling a little analytical today. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty smart though. That's a pretty clever. Definitely. I think it shows that you can use typo squatting, you know, not just for domain names and anyone can fall victim to this. Um, and, you know, in terms of development, it's really nice to have your development uh, team like directly be able to connect to the internet, download as many packages as they want. Uh, but I think this is something that, you know, people talk about as a potential threat. Uh, but here's an example of an implementation of this threat. Um, it's real. It's out there. Have to be very careful uh, because you know it's a very easy mistake to make, but it can deliver a very serious threat. From an enterprise perspective, it's important to understand what type of open source components you're using in your software development lifecycle. Uh, that way, when these types of things do come to light, you're able to go back and effectively identify instances of that inside of your application portfolio and take remediation action quickly. Yes. Yeah, I, th I think that's very important. So I think uh, we all know what to do. Implement a good policy for checking to make sure that <laughs> open source, you have a good scorecard of the different packages or components that comprise your system, but also having um, some education probably for your development team to realize that this could be something that can impact them um, and to hopefully prevent uh, you know, this from impacting your organization. Hey Mike, I'm curious to hear the story you have for us today. Yeah. So. Um came across an article about a new Chrome vulnerability that's kind of got a little bit of uh, mystery wrapped around it. I always find these interesting. So um, Google has issued this warning in a critical security flaw 
<clears throat> that's impacting both Windows, Mac, and Linux platforms and looking for users to upgrade to the most recent version of the Chrome browser as a result of this. Now, uh, the CVE in question is 2020-6457, and at least as of, you know, a day or two ago, uh, this was still a placeholder, uh, so there's not really a lot of details around it. And even when you go look at the um, notification from Google, um, there's not a lot of details there as well. Um, this appears to be a use-after-free um, related issue in the speech recognizer <clears throat> component of the, of the application, which, you know, in worst-case scenarios, these types of use-after-free bugs uh, can effectively become remote, exec remote code execution flaws. And so there's a lot of speculation out there right now about this, the amount of secrecy uh, that's around this particular issue um, and that it might be something that's actually pretty easy to exploit um, as a result of, you know, kind of the details kind of being hidden at this point in time. Um, and what's really interesting is when you look at the W3 counters uh, browser share uh, stats project and you see that Chrome accounts for 59% of internet browser traffic uh, with Safari being a far distant second, uh, about 12%, and then the combination of Internet Explorer and the Edge browsers coming in third at a combined 9%. Uh, and that, those st statistics represented uh, traffic for the month of March uh, in this year. So you've got this vast population out there of potentially exploitable browsers. And while Chrome does update automatically by default, this does still require at times for the application to be fully restarted. And with people working remotely from home and leaving their computers on and applications open and just kind of coming back to the dining table or wherever their laptop or temporary working um, station might be, these vulnerabilities, these exposures may actually persist um, for longer than one would anticipate, even uh, in situations where these applications are automatically updated. Um, so this is uh, an interesting sort of side effect, uh, potentially, of the increased number of work from home uh, type of uh, type workers right now. And with organizations maybe not having fully tested some of their patching capabilities or their ability to force restarts and things like that across VPN connections to manage some of these issues, it is something uh, of a bit uh, more of an exposure uh, than you might think. So. This vulnerability, double free, I know it's not the same, but there was one just a few weeks ago, I think, with Firefox, also a double free vulnerability, also very similar. Uh, you know, they didn't release a lot of the details necessarily. I think the only difference is it was uh, more open source. You could actually see the patch that was applied. And I think it was even more of a risk because people, you know, the bad guys could just go there and figure out how to exploit something like this. Now, I guess we are lucky as an industry because uh, you know, having learned already for many, many years that the software has to auto-update, it's nice to see that, you know, projects like Firefox or you know, Chrome, IE, and they've all implemented this auto-update feature for the most part. And I think people usually have to do something special to break that from working. So hopefully, you know, more people will be safer now uh, because they're using a browser that's like auto-updating. But I think you've mentioned some very important concerns for enterprises uh, over VPN and things like that, where they probably haven't necessarily tested. Does that work very well? How often does that, you know, before probably didn't have to worry about it as much, but now that most of the workforce is coming in remote, 
I think uh, I guess we'll learn uh, what what happens. Yeah, browser vulnerabilities are particularly important to address because they are, you know, the kind of attack surface of choice for a lot of end user targeted threats, right? I mean, it's either going to be email or your browser that you, as an end user, traditionally interact with the rest of the world through. Uh, and so those attack surfaces are constantly getting bombarded and really uh, to help, you know, maintain your security posture, making sure those are up to date is critical. And what's interesting is that because of personal choice, if you haven't done a good job of locking down permissions, you may have instances of these, you know, non-OS related um, browsers um, installed in your environment that you might not be aware of. So as an administrator, if your users have permissions uh, sufficient to download and install their own applications, you could have these potentially vulnerable applications out there in the environment that might not be under your administrative control or even on the radar. So it is important to make sure that, <clears throat> you know, you are identifying um, those potential attack services and vulnerabilities through ongoing scanning, both at the, you know, not only at the operating system for the endpoint, um, but also making sure that there's no vulnerable applications on there as well. And there's any number of solutions out there that can do that. I also think that your point that you have to make sure that you start is critical, right, for especially if so many more people are using mobile, that if they have to restart their um, devices to make sure that the new updates are uh, fully downloaded and executed, then that's an important point. So we have to, a lot of people don't turn their devices off very often. Yes, I know I've personally made a commitment to restart my laptop every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. But most of it is because of buggy software that I just want to clear my memory out. <laughs> I was about to say, is that choice really up to you or does it just restart on its own? <laughs> <laughs> and do you do that with your phone too, Stan? My phone, I probably, well, at the risk of telling everyone on YouTube what I do with my phone. <laughs> uh, I keep it very secure. <laughs> we can keep it secure, right. <laughs> We'll keep that a secret. Right. Hey, Karen. I understand you have a story to talk about uh, pertaining to some stolen GitHub accounts. That's right, Mike. Actually, this story reminded me a little bit of what Stan was talking about in terms of these code repositories like GitHub. In this case, they were actually stealing using phishing campaigns to get access to the GitHub uh, the user accounts and actually stealing all of their code that they were doing. So it's uh, unlike just stealing their money in terms of Bitcoin, um, they're actually downloading the code. And what's really interesting, a couple of accounts is, you know, we uh, would think that uh, people who are tech savvy and use GitHub wouldn't necessarily fall for these phishing, email phishing campaigns, but indeed they were. Um, and they were fairly clever in the way they were done, like all phishing campaigns. And they were basically taking them to an alternate login page. And what was really a little even scarier than others was that even if you had two-factor authentication turned on with your account, that actually because you've done that and they were they were taking you to an alternate login page, that they were actually stealing your 
uh, two-factor authentication. So that wasn't even uh, stopping this. And um, basically, they stole the user credentials. They were using them later on. They were um, just uh, the normal stuff that happens when, when this occurs where um, they were able to go back in, they were able to change people's passwords later on um, and, and basically uh, uh, create quite the problem in terms of GitHub and, and obviously being able to steal and upload whatever it is that they wanted to to those repositories. And, and I, it's not clear the way this article was written whether there was this extended um, impacts besides uh, their own libraries. But as we know, is, you know, that uh, GitHub libraries are shared. And so it didn't really talk about uh, what additional malware might have been then uploaded to somebody's library and then spread. But I was thinking about that. Um, that, in fact, this was uh, sounded like a, a pretty uh, serious uh, impact and, and that people really needed to take uh, some serious look at, at what was going on with um, their own GitHub accounts. Uh, one of the things they said was actually the best solution here is to use a password manager. Uh, obviously, everybody, they said, go back, change your passwords, um, but to use a password manager, uh, and if you were obviously getting redirected to a different login page, it would have worked, and uh, that would have been a signal for you that, uh, that that something was indeed uh, wrong and, and you were being uh, fished. Um, oh, and one other point that I thought was really interesting, they were using things like Bitly to shorten the URL so that people weren't even seeing an odd URL that they were being re redirected to. So, so I, I think some very interesting and uh, social engineering here to hide what they were doing. Uh, again, the recommendation here is uh, using a password manager, uh, but I did also think that the fact that two-factor authentication wasn't even stopping this was uh, another additional point uh, that, that uh, we seem to think that's a, um, a, you know, a, a something that we can always count on, uh, two-factor authentication, and, and it's, not, it's just not true. So uh, we used to, again, defense in depth, lots of different options here, but uh, that we need to think about in this case, but very interesting case uh, and scary, I thought. You know, when I started my career in cybersecurity, I always thought to be the best, I had to know how to reverse engineer every weird architecture that's out there. But what I've come to learn over the last like 15 years is, low-tech approaches to hacking they really work very well and sometimes even better than knowing everything there is to know about some you know some obscure architecture or exactly how x86 works or exactly how buffer overflows work you know phishing campaigns and social engineering people really do fall for that it's really easy to take advantage you know people are busy or they're not paying attention like you mentioned having legitimate looking links like bitly it can really trick people and uh, disclose their stuff. But another thing that's interesting to me, just thinking about like 15 years ago, you know, back in the day, hacking, I, I feel like at least was like, you, you know some crazy thing about this malware or buffer overflow exploit or something like that. Um, but now it seems like the adversaries, they're exploiting this like web of trust. So like in order to hack you, 
I might not directly go after you. I might figure out like, who do you trust? Oh, you trust this person on GitHub and the code that they, uh, you know, put out there or that they develop. I'm going to go after that person instead. So I think this is a, I think we've been seeing this kind of shift in general and for sure, you know, really advanced adversaries have always been taking advantage of things like that. But it seems to me that these days you hear about it like a lot more, like with this Ruby gems story or, you know, this GitHub story, it's like, you're, you're really taking advantage of the trust people have in someone else and really hacking that trust so much more than the individual person you might be um, going after. Uh, very interesting. Uh, very interesting. Just to think about that. Yeah, anytime you have a, a, a control that's predicated on a human being 100% um, accurate, you know, you're going to see failures. Um, you know, it's always easier because of that to undermine the human component of the people process and technology kind of triad than, than the others necessarily. But a couple of things to keep in mind with this story, um, people will hard code in API keys, passwords, credentials, things like that into um, some of these coding projects. Now, it's not a recommended practice, but it does happen. So aside from the risk of intellectual property loss, which is clear, and identifying subsequently exploitable vulnerabilities inside that intellectual property, which could be exploited later, you also have the idea that, you know, credentials beyond those that were fished could have also been disclosed. So really, you know, the idea of using a password manager is, is fine, but that really is only part of the issue here, only part of the challenge that organizations who fell victim to this are going to need to address. And then there is, of course, the potential for credential reuse by the accounts that are being fished. So did that developer use those same credentials on a different cloud service? Did that, did that credential also get used for the extranet or the, you know, HR payroll system that might be outsourced to AEP or somebody like that. So there's a number of uh, issues here when you start to look at these stories and it becomes really ugly really quickly. Um, and, and so making sure that you have robust password controls in place and that you're leveraging things like single sign-on or CASBs um, or other types of um, technologies that would allow you to go to one place and reset that credential um, so that it can be quickly reset across all of those different services and that you're not potentially leaving uh, an exposure out there is important for organizations to think about. Yes, I would say yeah, also uh, encouraging people, I think GitHub supports like two-factor authentication as well through different authenticator apps. So. I would encourage people who are kind of worried about this to enable that on their accounts. Uh, it can really make it more secure. And if somebody is trying to take ownership of your account, you'll at least get these authentications. Like, hey, somebody's trying to do something. You know, you should at least be aware. Maybe you could take some some action potentially. Um, yeah. You know, one one other thing that you mentioned, Karen, about Bitly. I don't know. This is like a well-known trick or not. If you add a plus to the end of a Bitly link, it'll show you where it'll redirect you before taking you there. So for those of us who are like super paranoid uh, and have their conspiracy theory hat on that they're always getting fished, just putting that little plus at the end of the Bitly link, uh, will make sure that you see where you get redirected before you go there. That's a really good tip, absolutely. But obviously they went through a lot of trouble because I don't think that's not always the case that they do that. So uh, to, to, to uh, try to hide that, 
but you know, they're dealing with people who were a little bit more savvy. So I think they had to cover their tracks. Uh, it wasn't just your grandmother who just got a, an email or something that uh, told her to change her password on her, her bank account or something. Um, so yeah, I think that's, a, that's another really good point. And the multi-factor authentication from a different, um, a, di a third party is I think also a really good um, recommendation for this. Hey everyone, uh, today I have the internet weather for this week and we'll start with the top 10 most pro ports. So one of the ways we measure internet activity, as you guys know, is measuring scanning activity. And the way we do that is by looking and profiling different ports that perhaps adversaries, security researchers, or others are looking for, we try to understand what does that behavior um, have to do with? Is there a new up and coming threat? So we do that two ways. The first is the most volume in scanning. And so this week, here are the top 10 most pro ports. I won't go through all of them because these are the same ports we see all of the time. However, there is one port here that obviously caught my attention. I know it's going to catch your attention when you see the slide. Uh, it's in position nine, port 8291TCP. Uh, that one sounds a little bit odd, um, but you could see it actually last week was in position uh, 1,386 in terms of scanning volume, um, and it has jumped up so many places um, uh, to uh, be with us this week. So um, I put a few slides together to explain the activity there. It's actually re-emergent uh, activity. I think we saw this um, back last year as well. Uh, so it's just going to be a little bit of an update on what's going on at this port. Another way that we look at activity is by analyzing, are there a bunch of devices scanning all at the same time? And the reason we do that is because we want to understand is there like any worming behavior or any bot-like or botnet behavior. And this week, again, on this chart, you could see there are two ports uh, that are pretty unique um, that have jumped up many, many places uh, to be with us uh, on this top 10 chart. Um, they are 8291TCP and 8728TCP. Both of these ports are pretty obscure. There's no necessarily known protocol that's running on these ports, but I'll share with you um, some of the things that um, we've discovered uh, about this. And again, we've actually covered this on ThreatTrack before, so I'll make some references there as well. So I actually wanted to go back and revisit what we did uh, in December of last year with these ports and see what the activity looked like back then. Um, as you guys could see, uh, both of these ports uh, had interesting spikes. So one of the spikes uh, you could see is with regards to how many flows are occurring, but the other spike that you could see is with how many IP addresses uh, that are scanning all at the same time. And you could see the basically the charts have a very good correlation between those. Um, now, prior to uh, July of last year, the two ports weren't really associated much with each other because you could see um, uh, one of the ports, basically the one in red, uh, it had a lot of activity or, or a lot of the bot-like activity uh, prior to when there was this coordinated activity with both of them at the same time. Okay, so knowing what we saw before, um, uh, let's see what it looks like today. So this chart, it does look a little bit different. Um, and the reason is because 
there was so much more scanning um, in the last, um, I guess, 60 days or so uh, that the scale of the graph has changed. Um, you could see basically the number of flow records uh, before that had to do with the scanning. You could see there was a lot of constant scanning. It was scanning that was going on all the time. Um, then at some point it's gone away and then there's all this you know, kind of sudden activity all spiking up at once. Um, and you could see that emulated in both uh, the number of devices on the bottom chart and the number of, um, you know, flow uh, flows uh, that are doing it. Um, and just for reference, uh, you could see there's basically, you know, 40 to 50,000 um, at its peak devices per hour uh, doing scanning all at the same time on both of these ports. So. Um, I guess what that means really is it is coordinated activity. Most likely it is a botnet of some sort. So the only thing left to figure out is, um, besides what it looks like in the last 60 days, um, is what is this and where is it coming from? So taking a look back to December and just trying to understand where was this activity emanating out of, uh, what were the sources responsible for this? We could see that a lot of the activity uh, was obviously happening in um, Central America, South America, uh, Europe and North Africa are pretty lit up and India and Southeast Asia there. Um, it seemed to have a lot of devices uh, that are participating in this kind of scanning activity. Now, when we take a look at uh, today's scanning activity, I actually had to limit it to generate this chart because it was uh, too many IP addresses all at the same time to try to map out. So I picked 10,000 random IP addresses that have been scanning in the last four hours uh, to generate this chart. And you could see the activity looks uh, very similar and there's uh, very, very similar hot zones uh, for where it's originating from. Um, However, it does seem like Central America uh, has fewer scanners now uh, than it did, you know, six or so months ago. Uh, so it's just interesting observations. Uh, it just helps us to understand the scale and scope of this potential botnet um, and areas of the world where devices engaged in the scanning are more likely to be present or the victim devices, you know, where are they? Um, and just doing a little bit more research on these ports, um, a really, really long time ago, um, there's a tool that was released, uh, actually, that basically supported brute forcing activity against these ports. So somebody's figured out, um, and so um, this chart here is actually from our honeypot. You could see that um, when devices connect, uh, they attempt to log in and they maybe do some sort of um, brute forcing um, on port 8728. There's also uh, something that happens on port 8291 in terms of um, HTTP requests, uh, but both of those behaviors can be attributed to this tool, which basically is a brute forcing tool uh, that some pen testers put together uh, to pen test uh, microtik routers and just try brute forcing with different um, um, with different passwords. Uh, and both of these ports are actually commonly known to be either the API or the um, uh, Winbox management port for microtik devices. Um, so. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any questions, but this is uh, really interesting. It does show that botnet behavior. Um, definitely something to be aware of. Well, we've seen those micro-tick routers be targeted by campaigns over and over again over the last several months. So in that regard, this isn't necessarily surprising. And, you know, since these probably aren't getting, you know, forcibly updated, you know, you might just be seeing, you know, continuing, you know, 
going after the same already impacted devices over and over again. I'm going to have to go look at that. You know, we've obviously seen a big rise in DDoS attacks over the last month when people have a lot more time on their hands. And uh, just curious whether we're seeing this port pop up in, uh, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, Stan, but I think I'm going to go take a look. There's only 65,000 ports or so. <laughs> I'm surprised you don't have them all. I can't remember them all. I can't remember them all every day when you look at them. <laughs> You need a really uh, big set of flashcards. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is very interesting. And again, this is something we're going to keep an eye on. But obviously, it's recurrent behavior, and it's something that you know the adversaries seem to be interested in all the time. Uh, but it is behavior that seems to you know come and go, um, and we'll continue keeping an eye on it. And of course, like Karen said, we'll also check what kind of DDoS behaviors might be associated with uh, with the botnet that might be behind this. And uh, that's all for the internet weather. If uh, if any of our viewers, if you guys have any comments or feedback, or if you know anything more about like this microtech exploits or what might be behind the this uh, uh, behavior that we've described here, you know, go ahead, contact us. Uh, let us know your opinion, and definitely feel free to comment in the in the comment section below. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.